So, um, 2 Timothy 1, verses uh, 8 to 18. Uh, today we're going to talk about something that has been a significant challenge uh, for the whole time that the church has been a thing, since the time of Jesus all the way into today. And, and that thing is the, the tendency in Christians to, even though they profess faith in Christ, at times feel ashamed of Christ. Uh, I think you know what I mean by this, if you are a Christian, that we gather here together, that uh, we're not ashamed of walking in the door, that we're glad to come and worship. There's a genuine affection for the Lord in our hearts. And yet, in certain circumstances, there is a, a sense of, uh, let's say, maybe embarrassment or sheepishness or, or something, right? To, to be ashamed it can have a lot of different meanings, but primarily today we're going to talk about that sense of, of maybe embarrassment is the word, reluctance to associate ourselves with the things of God. Uh, this can happen... Uh, throughout our entire kind of life as a Christian. When I first came to Christ, uh, I, I felt this. I became a Christian in my teenage years. I remember a conversation with my uh, neighbor, from my, neighbor, my neighbor's older brother, and he had found out I was, you know, I don't know how it came up. Uh, we were talking about Christianity, that I had, you know, was going to youth group. And he just said, you know, Matt, I just, I don't get it. I, I don't really get how you can worship a God that you can never see, and that, you know, he's kind of in charge of you and that you're following him. Like, it just makes no sense to me. And I remember feeling totally, uh, like, I just didn't know what to say. Uh, first of all, I was very new to the faith, so I didn't really know how to explain things. But I just remember thinking, That's, it's not, it's better than what you're saying, but I don't, I don't know how to say it. And I kind of feel foolish because I don't know what to say to you. There was a sense of, of shame that came, and I, I wish that I could have been able to articulate my faith and to not feel embarrassed about it. But you know, that didn't totally go away. It got a lot better, but even recently. Uh, I remember um, a conversation with, where there's a, I was, you know, coach of Thomas' soccer team, obviously, given my athletic skills. And uh, so I was, uh, there's another coach. Uh, I was like the third assistant coach. And so uh, this guy, when I first met him, he was kind of an intimidating guy. He's really tall, buff guy, and uh, tattoos from here, all, his entire body, covered in tattoos, and uh, he was just a little bit intimidating, but su super nice guy. As I got to know him, totally one of the nicest guys, but one of the things that struck me was that there's a lot of Christian imagery on his body. There were crosses on the back of his head, is, is Jesus crucified on the cross, and so I wanted to talk to him, but I, I felt myself being kind of intimidated, kind of, kind of sheepish, like I kept wanting every practice, uh, Finally, I just said, hey, uh, Syl, I noticed you have Jesus on the back of your head. What's up with that? Like, do you, and we had, a, we had a great conversation about faith, but that part of me that was reluctant was, was still there, I noticed. And, and you probably have experienced the same thing, that, that there are times and situations where it's, it's difficult to just verbalize your faith or to be associated with the things of the church because of things that other people are saying. In our text this morning, we're going to see that, that this was a concern for Paul, that in the early church, that this was a thing, a challenge, that people were ashamed of their faith, and that Timothy, the one who was leading the church, Paul feels it necessary to exhort him not to be ashamed. In fact, what we're going to see from Paul is that this isn't just a, a personality thing. It's not just that there are some Christians who are very bold and easy, you know, when they're talking about their faith and others that are more shy. It really does come down to the heart of faith itself about what we believe about the gospel, 
about the importance it has on our lives. In fact, we're going to see that, in a sense, to be ashamed of the gospel is, in fact, to reject the gospel. And so for that reason, it is a very serious matter. And we should want to know what God has to say about it. So let's turn our attention to our text. I'm going to read the first chunk, 8 to 14, uh, just for this first bit of our time. Here's the word of God. Therefore, Paul says, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit, who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And we'll pause there. So, the first point is Paul's very first words, pretty much, right? He says, therefore, do not be ashamed. And his, his exhortation to Timothy is very clear. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. He's saying it very clearly, very directly. And that's, that's because uh, he seems to understand that there might be some reasons why Timothy would be ashamed of the gospel. And he says it in the very first verse, right? Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. That's the first thing. What he's saying to, to Timothy is, look, don't, don't be ashamed of the, the things that happened to Jesus. In a sense, he's saying you do not be ashamed of the cross. Which makes sense because the cross, uh, in that culture especially, was a shameful thing. If you just were to ask people at that time what they would associate with the cross, they, they would be very reluctant to even talk about it. At dinner parties, in conversation, polite conversation, you would never bring up a cross because a cross was, a, was an instrument of torture, an instrument of death. Anyone who was nailed to a cross was, was clothed in shame because it, it meant guilt, right? It meant weakness, it meant suffering. It also meant exposure. They were, they were crucified naked. This was intentionally designed by the Romans and by all those who would crucify someone to completely belittle them and so the whole associations with the cross were, were shameful. And for Christians, this posed a real challenge. Because the whole hope of our, of our faith is the cross. And so th for them to share the gospel meant that they had to go and to share what happened. The things that were the testimony of our Lord. Here's what happened to, to Jesus, the Savior of the world. He was crucified on a cross. And the people they were explaining this to would have just been like, what are you talking about? Like, how could that ever be a good thing? We get, we get sort of a, a window into this. In 1 Corinthians, um, uh, Paul's writing about this, and he says this, 1 Corinthians 1, uh, verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. For the Jews, they're, they're waiting for the Messiah. And Christians come along. He's, he's been here. The Messiah's here. Yes, really? What? He was the one who was crucified. What? It's a huge stumbling block. 
for the Jewish people to think their Messiah, the Savior, would be, would be crucified. This shameful death. It, it was hard intellectually for them just to grasp it. And for Gentiles, for the non-Jews, it was just stupid. Like, what do you mean? A, this Jewish peasant, this penniless peasant who was put to death for obviously some crimes that he committed, he's the one you want me to believe in? Seems utterly ridiculous. And we, we know this kind of response because we still get this response, right? When we, when we try to bring it up or when it comes up in, in class, right? We know the feeling of if you're in some sort of sociology class or something, Christianity comes up and, and you feel like maybe you should say something in defense of Christianity, try to explain it better. And you can just tell the class is like, this is, this is stupid, that they would believe this, that they would believe this book written thousands of years ago by people, and now you're, you're doing exactly what it says? Right? You believe that God came down into uh, a virgin, was born of a virgin? Like, that doesn't even make sense. And then he did a bunch of miracles, which don't make sense, and then he was crucified, he was put to death, and then came back to life. All of it is just, makes no sense if you're a rational, scientific person, which everyone wants to be these days. And so we... We know the, the feeling that Timothy would have. We know what Paul is speaking into. There's this sense of shame that comes over us of trying to say, no, that is actually what I believe. But at the time, there was another layer to this shame, uh, the potential shame that Timothy would have felt. And that was, that was what happened to Paul himself. Because uh, you notice in verse 8 there, it says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, that's the cross, nor of me, his prisoner. And so there, Paul is talking about... What has happened to me? He's in jail. That's a shameful thing. Think of even today, right? Imagine if you are falsely arrested, right? Some mistaken identity, whatever, right? What would you be thinking as they're handcuffing you? If there's people around you, what would you be saying? It's not, it's not written, it's, it's a mistake. It's not, they put you over the hood of the car. This is not, I didn't, why? Because you immediately feel a sense of embarrassment and shame, right? Just being handcuffed, just put in a police car, right? Everyone all of a sudden thinks, mm, maybe, maybe you did something wrong. Even though I've known you forever, maybe, maybe what they're saying is true. And the same struggle was going on in, in the early church for those who knew Paul, right? They knew him, but he's, he's in a jail. They're not letting him out, right? There, there would be a, a reluctance to associate yourself with Paul that we're gonna see is very real. And, and many people turned away because it's, it's shameful to be arrested. Right? The, the assumption is you must, must have done something wrong. So these layers of, of shame were, were felt by Timothy. They were, we see it in the history of the church. Remember Peter? What was going on with Peter? Jesus, I'm ready to go with you to prison, to death. Right? As soon as Jesus is just arrested, he didn't, nothing even happened to him yet. Everyone flees. Right? That evening when Peter's asked, aren't you with that guy? No, no, no not, not me. I don't, but you're a Galilean. No, no, I don't even know him. I don't even know him. Why? He was... He was embarrassed. He, he did not want to be associated with Christ. This is a real challenge back then and, and to, until today. And w- so what does Paul say? Well, he doesn't mince words, obviously. He says to Timothy, don't. Do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed of, of the gospel. This is very clearly, we see it twice in the text I read. We're going to see it again. This is something that Paul says very, very clearly. You should not be ashamed of these things that you believe. Why, Paul? Why, why should we not be ashamed? He makes it very clear. 
What, what, he, what he says in the next couple verses, we're going to go through them in detail, but what he essentially says is, look, the gospel is not a shameful thing. In the eyes of the world, they may not understand it, they may see it that way, but in the, the true eyes, the, the, the clarity, the objective reality of what is true, it is not a shameful thing, it is a glorious thing. It is something that displays the magnificence, the majesty, the glory of God. And the way that Paul communicates this to Timothy is basically just to explain the gospel in, in detail. He doesn't take a lot of words to do it, but the, the resolution, here's how I would describe it. He gives like a, a high definition rendering of the gospel. You know, like when you go to Best Buy these days or, or Costco even, right? And you see these new TVs, these high, like 8K TVs, and they're so crystal clear, you can see like the the texture of the ladybug's wing and you can see the colors. You don't even have enough rods and cones in your eyes to absorb them all. And it's just like, it's that kind of clarity that Paul gives us. And, and I'm gonna show you. He actually, he reveals the grace of God in the gospel, but he gives us three kinds of grace, which help us to see the gospel clearly yet again. Or maybe, maybe for the first time today, if you'd understand, what is this good news? What is this gospel? So let, let's walk through it. The first kind of grace that we see here is a sovereign grace. Paul talks about the sovereign grace of the gospel. This is in uh, verse 9. It says, I share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. So here Paul is making very clear the gospel, the, the salvation of God has nothing to do with us and what we did, but everything to do with God. This is, this is a wonderful thing. And I think for us to really understand kind of what this means for us. Because the gospel, if we know it to be true, it's Jesus died for his sins on the cross, rose again. But for us to really comprehend how that applies to us, like how did that thing happening save us, it, it, it totally is dependent upon the actions of God. And when we see this more clearly, it will increase our, our love for the Lord, our appreciation of the gospel, our, our willingness to be like, no, that's, that's, that's what God did. So let me just, I'm going to give you a flow chart because who doesn't like a good flow chart? And I think it's helpful, okay? So here's the sovereign grace of God, that God is in charge of our salvation. Where do we all begin? We begin as human beings in unbelief. Unbelief, every human being, everywhere, right? None of us is, is, is born unless the Spirit has done something before we've been born, but none of us by ourselves will believe that Jesus died for our sins. Right? Why? Because we are, we are dead spiritually. Here's what it says in Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 really walks through this process in a really clear way. So I'm going to give you a few verses. Unbelief. And you, human being, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. This is Paul describing a human being apart from God, every one of us, right? That, that we were alive physically, we're walking, right? We, we were walking around, but spiritually we're dead. Meaning, we have no sense of the truth about ourselves. You, you can see this if you just look at our culture. Right? There's a lot of activity, a lot of sense of, of some sort of life, but it's not true life because morally we're corrupt. 
right? Spiritually, we have, we have no sense of what is true, the, the transcendent. We yearn for these things, but by ourselves, we can't, we can't find them. So what are, we, what are we doing? We're dead in our sins. We're following the demonic forces out there. We're living in the passions of our flesh. Well, we need to understand every Christian here, none of us were on the short list for heaven, you, you know? Like none, God didn't look at any of us and we're like, that one, that's who I need, right? They're really learning. We didn't, because of our own mind, figure out that Jesus is the Savior and come to faith. It wasn't it. We never could. Why? Because we're dead. Dead things don't do anything. Our dead heart could never have faith. So what changed? Who did something? It wasn't us. It was God. And the theological term is, is regeneration. This is the next step. We go from unbelief to regeneration, which is, is a fancy word that means we're all of a sudden alive. How? What did it happen? Look at the next part in, uh, in Ephesians. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Notice, we haven't done anything yet. It's not, we didn't hear the gospel think about it a lot, figured out, yes, I see him as Savior, come to faith, and then God was like, yes, now you're alive. Me, No, he, he did the work first. The only reason that any one of us was able to repent, express faith, is because our dead heart was made alive. That is the shift, the essential shift that is necessary for anyone to be saved. And, and the point here is that it's God who did it. He is the one. And what's the response? Well, that's the next step. From unbelief to regeneration, the next, the next step is, is belief, right? Belief, or you might say repentance, whatever it is. And even that, right? Then you say, well, that's me, that's me choosing Jesus. Sometimes you hear people say that, right? Tell me your story. Well, when I was 19, I found God. Yeah, but that's not exactly what the Bible says. Yes, you felt that way. We all did. We do make a real choice. But that belief, who empowers that choice? Look at, look at Ephesians uh, 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that's our belief, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So even in us choosing, the Bible is helping us to see, you know, behind the curtain that our heart softened by the Holy Spirit, faith given as a gift, and then from that, we see everything differently. We see our sin clearly. We see Jesus clearly. We, we, we respond. We need to respond, right? We pray. We pray the sinner's prayer. We do, we do whatever. We respond, and it's the next step of, of the salvation that God is doing in us, and from that is a, a life of faith, right? That's, that's the next step. That's what many of us are, are living. We go from belief or unbelief, regeneration belief, to a life of faith. And a life of faith, if you're living one, it feels like we're doing a lot of stuff, and we are, right? We're... we're trying to identify sin. We're trying to serve the Lord. We're on our knees. We're feeling anxious or concerned, conflicted. We're working hard. There's a lot of sweat and it should be that way. But what we need, we shouldn't forget is that even there, God is at work. Look at Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Many of us know that fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's what, that's what Paul's saying the whole time, right? He's saying he saved us, called us to a holy calling. We should pursue holiness. Yes, not because of our works, right? It's not, not what we're doing, but because of his own purpose and his own grace. Paul's reminding Timothy, do you, do you realize what has happened in you? Do you realize the power of God 
that has saved you, brought you from death to life, and now is empowering even your, your faith journey to the, to the end result, the last stage is uh, his heaven, right? Life of faith, you might say the next step is death of, like, faith, meaning you, you all go to your death, believing. You make it to the end of the race, a lot of language that Paul uses. And then in heaven, we are perfected, we don't struggle anymore, we, we experience fully what we are experiencing in part through the Holy Spirit. This, this is the application of the gospel in our lives. The, the, what Jesus did applied to us by the power of God and what we're meant to see here is that it, it's all to God's glory. It, it's all to the, a testimony to the wonder and power of God. And, and the next thing in our mind in, in the context of what we're talking about today should be like, why would we be embarrassed about any of this? Why would we not just be awestruck, dumbstruck? Lord, Lord, look what you've done. Look, look what you've saved me from, myself, from, from the demonic influences of the world, from the consequences that I deserve. The next thing on my lips should be, man, I, there's so many people I know that, that need to hear this and that I would want to tell them because I, I can know that it's, it's not up to me to save anybody. It never is. It's up to me to be faithful and, and to rejoice in what God has done, but he is the one who saves. In fact, Paul takes it a step further. So that's the uh, sovereign grace of God, but the next thing he mentions is the pre-existent grace of God, which is, which is even more glorious. So here's the last part of verse nine. All of that by the power of God who saved us for his own purpose, which he gave us in Christ Jesus when? Before the ages began. So the first bit is the answer to who. Who, who did the gospel? Who is the active you know, one making the gospel happen? God. When did he do it? Before he even made a flower. Right? Before everything. God planned all of this. He knew us. There's, there's verses in the Bible uh, at the end. There's going to be a book of life. The names written of all those who are saved. When were those names written? Before the foundation of the world. You see... When you see it clearly, that's what I mean, high definition rendering, the gospel, the, the closer you look, the more it points to the glory and grace and power of God. It's all, it's all God. And, and what does that make us? Recipients, thankful recipients, glad-hearted recipients who have an opportunity to tell others. Th this sense of God's sovereignty over salvation sometimes makes us a bit uncomfortable, right? Because we like, we like to be sovereign. We like to be in charge. We like the idea that we thought about things enough and then figured it out and then, you know, made a decision. That makes us feel, feel comfortable. We like that. We don't like the idea of that, wait, this was, my decisions were figured out ahead of time? That makes me feel very uncomfortable. It shouldn't. What it should make you realize is that each one of us is the pinnacle of God's creation, designed to genuinely experience the transforming power of his spirit to his glory. That's the whole point, why we were made. And it's not a farce. It's not a sham. It's not a facade. We actually are experiencing his grace. We actually are being transformed, making choices, and able to point others to him as well. It's a wonderful reality. There's no shame in the gospel at all. In fact, the third part is the part maybe we know the best, the, the visible grace, the sovereign grace, preexistent grace. That's the who, the when, the what is all about Jesus, the visible grace of God. And we see this in, the last, in verse 10. 
which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This is, this is what Jesus did on the cross. And I love the language there. What did he do? He abolished death. If there's one thing in this world that needed to be abolished, it was death. Such a great translation. The Greek word is like to void, to destroy, but abolished. That's like, if you look it up in the dictionary, to abolish something means to put an end to a system, which is what death was, right? It was part of the system of reality. The corrupt, evil part of it is that we all now die because of our sin. If you think about all the things that were abolished, like wiped out, they were they're evil things. That's what we associate it with. The abolitionist movement is, we know it's to do with slavery, right? It was evil, corrupt, needed to be abolished. The apar apartheid in South Africa, evil, corrupt, needed to be abolished. Nazism, in, in Germany right now, it's illegal to call yourself a Nazi, that for that to be a political party. Why? Because it needed to be abolished. It was evil. Death. Death is something that many people in our world just think is part of life, right? It's just the next step, part of life, even though we all spend our entire lives trying not to die, right? We don't, we know intuitively it's not, if we're sound mind and body, we don't want that. That's why we have oils and vitamins, all sorts of things. That's why we jog. We don't want to jog. Why do we do it? We don't want to die, right? That's so, so Jesus said that thing, I'm, I'm getting done with it, abolishing it. I'm bringing what life? Immortality to light how? Through the gospel. The gospel is, is everything that we need. And when we see it clearly, here's what we see. We can see that every other human idea is only going to lead people closer and closer to hell. There, there's no other hope. There, there's nothing else out there that deals with death and sin and the hardness of the human heart. Only the gospel of Jesus will save. That's why Paul says, Romans 1.16, right? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. This is the thing that if there's anything that we should be proud of, we should be glad to associate ourselves with, it is this. For that to happen, we need to see it clearly, but also we need to believe it for ourselves. And this is uh, verse 11 and 12. Paul says, um, this gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and a teacher, or apostle and teacher, uh, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And so you see kind of a, a shift in terms of not just what I know about the gospel, but what I believe about it. Am I convinced that God will guard this faith that he has given me? Right? Do I know the one? Do I, do I, do I believe? Do I trust when those two things go together, there is no sense of shame because we understand the, the gravity of the situation. We understand the seriousness of what we're talking about. And we are convinced that it isn't just a, a superficial ideology that's going to come and go. We know that God will preserve us and protect us. And so we hold fast. And that's, that's the second point. It's two points. First one, do not be ashamed of the gospel. But secondly, stand firm in the faith. That's the next bit of what Paul really says. And his argument is, look, if we believe the gospel fully, as Paul did, then 
then we will live a life of faith. We will stand firm in it. And 13 and 14, you get a bit of a picture of it. He says, then follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And so Paul's describing the response. What is the response? Well, that we believe. Uh, He said earlier that we're willing to sacrifice or suffer for this belief. We see it's important enough that we're confident that God is going to guard us and then we're faithful that we would guard the truth that he's given us. And that means that we maybe correct each other. That we make sure when people are talking about the gospel of Jesus that they're, they're being faithful to the Bible. Because we know throughout church history, things can, can waver. And also that we follow the pattern of sound words. Which I love that phrase. Because it makes me think of two things. One, what kinds of words am I following? And do I see the patterns that are, that are there? Patterns towards life or patterns towards death? And Paul, Paul's saying, look, the words, my words that are from the Lord, these words are going to lead you increasingly towards Christ himself. And this is what I want for you. In fact, this is, this is a mark of faithfulness. To kind of further impress his point, Paul ends by giving uh, two examples of, of um, people that Timothy knew. Uh, examples of, of uh, faithlessness, like someone who's ashamed of the gospel, ashamed of Paul, and then someone else who is uh, faithful, who's, who's willing to identify himself with Paul. So we'll read this last little bit, 15 to 18. We see the two examples. Uh, in 15, we see the faithless example. He says to Timothy, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. So just one line, and he doesn't need to say much more because Timothy knows these people. But what's interesting is, I mean, I think that's hyperbole is probably the best interpretation when he says all who are in Asia. That I don't think it's probably accurate to say the entire church of Asia abandoned Paul, but what he's saying is it feels that way. There's a large group of people from some of the churches that he planted that turned away. Uh, what does that mean? It means intentionally to distance themselves, to reject Paul. Why? Probably because he was arrested. Probably, you know, given the climate, the, the violent threats of Nero towards the Christian church, when Paul got arrested and taken to Rome, that the churches in Asia that he was, you know, associated with, a lot of people were like, whoa, 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 Paul? Who's, I don't know Paul. Right? When the Roman soldiers would come through, I, that's not... No, I don't know what you're talking about. But what Paul's trying to make clear is when they turn away, it's, it's not just that they're distancing themselves from me. They're actually distancing themselves from, from Christ. Not that Paul and Christ are synonymous, but that for one who is suffering for Christ, if you then turn your back on that person, what are you saying? But I, I, don't, want, I don't want that to rub off on me. Whatever he believes, I don't, I don't, I don't want you to think that I believe the same thing because they're fearful, because they're ashamed. But there's another group of people, or one person, sorry, uh, Onesiphorus. And look at how Paul describes him. He says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you will know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So think of the practicalities here. Paul was taken by Roman guards, brought to Rome uh, by himself. No one was with him, put in jail. 
And no one really knew where he was. There were some Christians in Rome, but they didn't even seem to know where he was. Onesiphorus, he takes it upon himself to go to Rome. Again, remember, Nero has it out for the Christians. He's burning them at the stake. He's burning them at his garden parties. He's throwing them to the lions. So think of Onesiphorus coming into town, not knowing anyone. Uh, sorry, could you, do you know where the prison, is there a prison here somewhere? Who are you looking for? Uh, Paul. Paul, what did he, well, he's, he's a Christian and I'm a Christian and we're just trying to find him. You would draw a lot of attention to yourself, right? That's the last thing you would want to do in Rome is to start going around telling people I'm with that guy, right? The guy who's about to be executed, but that's what he did. Why? He loved Paul. And, and more than that, he loved Jesus. He was not ashamed. And so that translated into a courageous, loving response of going to refresh. He was the only one who probably brought Paul some water, brought Paul some, I don't know what he's allowed to bring him, but something to refresh him. And Paul's so thankful. And, and you see the contrast, right? We're meant to see the contrast between those in the church that turned their backs and walked away and those who were willing to put themselves in harm's way. And it made me think of, of the way the church is being persecuted to this day. I was reading an article of um, sort of describing some of the persecution going on in China with the, the church there. There's like a government sort of sanctioned church, which is not a true church, but those who are true Christians who are seeking to live a faithful life, um, they were describing what happens when their pastors get put in prison, which often happens. They're not always executed. Sometimes they're held for a little while and then they're, they're released but there's this custom that's developed for the church. What they do, uh, when the pastor's being released, they all come to the prison. And when the, the pastor comes out, they, they have a party. They celebrate there on the prison steps. And they're celebrating, I guess, for lots of reasons, right? One, he's still alive, praise God. But also they're celebrating that, that he had the honor of suffering for Christ. And that they want him to know that they're with him. And they want everyone to know we're with him. They're not ashamed. They're not fearful. They're not scared. They're saying, we're, we're with you, and we're with Christ. And whenever I read stories like that, I, I just think to myself, I wonder how we are going to respond as a church. We're not in that situation. Some of us have come from places like that, where it actually is uh, a, a threat to be identified with Christ. Not many of us, though, have really been in that situation. But I think we know it's, it's, it's coming, right? That, that it's... It's not long before some of the things that are written in the Bible that are already considered to be, you know, kind of foolish or, or just wrong, that they would, they would now be contrary to the law. That, that if a pastor is just wanting to preach through some of the text and, and just reveal what God says about sexuality or gender or, or other religions, that that would be condemned by the state. And so how are we going to respond? How am I going to respond when, when I'm in that situation? And when I'm taken off to jail? And how are we going to respond when all of a sudden we're talking about the life that used to just be a bit awkward, but now is potentially, you know, under the penalty of, of some law that, that came up? How are we going to be willing, like Onesiphorus, to, to put ourselves in harm's way to say, look, this, this, is, this is who I am. This is what I believe. The, the only way that we are going to be able to remain faithful is if we see what Paul is showing us here. If, if we see the gospel with absolute clarity that it is the source of life, it's the source of grace, it is the source of power for every human being, not, not just for this life, but for the life to come. 
And if we believe it, that really is the key. Not just that we know it. The demons know it, right? We know a lot. There's, there's religious studies majors that could tell you the gospel. That's not the same as trusting it with our lives. Do we trust that God will keep us and preserve us? Through physical suffering, through emotional suffering, through the awkwardness of conflict, whatever it is, to the place that we would be able to testify that yes, Jesus is my Lord. I'm not ashamed. I want the opportunity to tell as many people as I can. And that as we do that, our faith will be strengthened and that more people will be saved. So let me pray that for us. Let me pray that God would help us to have that resolve. Lord Jesus, we we do pray for this. You made it very clear that if the world is gonna hate you, it's gonna hate us. And yet you also made it very clear that the, one of the clearest testimonies that we can have to the world about who you are and, and who we are is that we would love them. That Jesus, you, you prayed for those who crucified you. You're, you're not calling us to be combative with the world. You're not calling us to, to wage war on the world. You're calling us to, to, to suffer and to be clear and, and to not be ashamed of that which has saved us from ourselves. And so I pray, Jesus, that for all of us, in whatever, whatever situations we are in, maybe it's, maybe it's family, maybe it's just family gatherings are awkward. There's someone who's critical of our newfound faith. Maybe it's in the workplace. Or maybe it's just this sense that there's people in our lives that we, we, we really want to talk to and we've just felt, uh, felt it difficult to do that. God, would you, would you bolster our sense of courage and faith? Would you remind us that you will guard us, that you are with us, and would you have so clear in our minds that ultimately it is you who save? And Lord, we don't, we don't need to convince people. We need only to be faithful and to share in love and to allow your spirit to do the work that he's done in every, every believer's heart, which is bring us, to bring us to the point of conviction. So thank you, Jesus. For those of us in this room that you've saved, I pray, Lord, for those who are wrestling. God, would you, would you move in their hearts? And would you use us, Lord, this week so that we might be a testimony to the grace and power of the gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.